This is an ABC podcast. You're listening to A Big Country. I'm Clint Jasper. This week, we're meeting a sheep farmer with a passion for the past. He's amassed a huge collection of antique agricultural equipment that tells the story of the wool industry over many decades. We'll hear how women from Bangladesh are sharing their family traditions, culture and art through an exhibition in their community in country New South Wales. And we'll meet the Queensland farmers growing a tropical fruit native to South America's Amazon Basin. They're finding huge demand for the achacha fruit from Bolivians living in Australia who are craving a taste of home, as well as others who are hooked on its unique flavour. When we got our first 700 fruit, we asked a whole mass of different people to describe the flavour and we wrote everything down and the most common was sweet, tangy, refreshing, like a sorbet. So they're the words we use to describe it. We'll visit the plantation where they're growing the sweetly acidic achacha fruit that is coming up. First today, we're meeting a cattle breeder specialising in small animals for small farms. In southwest Western Australia, Denise Warner is breeding miniature Hereford cattle. They have the same red and white coats of regular Herefords, but only reach around two-thirds of the height. She told reporter Ellie Honeybone the mini breed are popular with people who don't want big animals on their properties. I actually cannot breed enough of them because so many big, larger properties have been broken down into smaller properties and people just want to have not necessarily the big animals on their properties. They would like to have the smaller animals. Um, They're lighter on the soil, easier on fences. And being Hereford, they're so placid, it's incredible, you know. Yeah, I was was just about to say they're extremely beautiful and very calm, friendly-looking animals just standing here looking at them. Yeah, and that's something that I'm very passionate about is the number of people in the cities in particular that never get to, to touch or, or have anything to do with cattle. And that's why I do shows. I do the Royal Show. I do several other shows and I do a, a couple of small farm field days. And for the sole purpose, I don't need to do it to sell my animals because I can't grow enough of them. Um, but I'm passionate about people being able to interact with animals with the with the cattle and it and you can see by the questions you get at these places just how much that is needed you've also found that uh, some people have used them for sort of you know almost therapy purposes is that right yes I have one animal oh I've had a couple over the years but I've got one animal at at this stage who was a little orphan um, and the lady took him at only a few weeks old after he'd been to the Royal Show where hundreds of people had come past and patted him, but the ideal animal as a therapy animal. And I've known of another animal that was in a place where children went who were having school problems, and I was told their demeanour changed completely when they got to work with the animals. And that's that, to me, is fantastic that having that relationship with an animal was some form of satisfaction for somebody that was obviously troubled in other ways in their lives you know. Tell us about your property here um, near Waruna how many you've got here and and how much land you've got. I have 80 acres um, which my husband and I bought Um, 
about 20 years ago. Um, unfortunately, I lost him 12 years ago this coming weekend. Uh, so I run the property on my own. I run my animals on my own. Um, I get limited help in just to do odd jobs like fencing and that sort of stuff. Um, but probably 90% of the things to be done on the farm I do myself. So I've got 11 of my calves on the ground at the mu- oh, 12 now. After two days ago, I had another little another little boy born, and I've got another 12 girls to carve this year. I have seven working bulls at the moment. One of them on Friday I took down to Torbay near Albany to service three girls down there. He was a happy little boy. Is it ever hard to part with them? Do you ever have funds oh, you can't let go hard. of? That is hard. <laughs> very, very hard. When you've, I mean, ev- just about every animal on this property, other than the ones that don't belong to me, I think I can only think of one other animal that wasn't born here. I won't let an animal leave the property unless it's been halt broken. Um, so obviously I spend a lot of time with the animals. What do you love about them? What, what keeps you doing this on your own? I mean, it's, I'm, I'm sure, incredibly hard work, but you're obviously very passionate. What, what keeps you going? Well, that could be a multiple of things. Um, the breed, the, um, the passion of young people getting involved in the cattle industry, trying to break down a little bit that barrier between the city and the country as far as cattle, as far as animals are concerned and helping people understand that you don't just put a cow in a paddock all of a sudden she has a calf and you've got some meat or some milk it doesn't work that way there's a lot more involved in it they're very uh-huh. easy are they very easy to handle oh, anyway very, easy. very placid hereford breed has always been renowned for being placid and these are incredibly although I will say small man syndrome does come into play if they're in the paddock with my big ones they're the boss I would not have expected that they do you'll see them pushing the big ones around around at the hay ring you'll see the little ones pushing the big ones out of the way <laughs> come with me and I'll show you So it's made from old saris. This one is beautiful. To paint a picture, it's a really dark colour, but it's covered in so many bright um, embroidered type patterns. Yes, isn't it just gorgeous? There's blues and whites and oranges and it's full of flowers and leaves. And these are all the different motifs that are hand-stitched by women in Bangladesh to make this gorgeous kapha or quilt. Hello, I'm Emily Doak and I'm looking at a colourful collection of traditional quilts from Bangladesh called kathas. The art of kathas and the stories of the women who made them are the focus of an exhibition at the Museum of the Riverina in Wagga Wagga here in southern New South Wales. The city's home to a community of about 120 Bangladeshis I'm chatting with Bangladeshi women, Nuzrat Shumi and Afsfana Tanjim Ani, who've been involved in bringing this exhibition together. 
Even a couple of years ago, there was not much electricity and lots of poverty. So people in rural areas, women, would come together and over a couple of months, they would sit down, they would seal, they would chat with each other, catch up. It's in a really bleak situation, it's like a little bit of a hope, a light, and you pass it on to your children and your grandchildren. So it's a beautiful thing, I think. How important is that togetherness, the community aspect of making these rugs? Actually, in Bangladesh, they are, the society, it is a bit different. They are always be together, like a family, you know. They have different, uh, we call it village, but it is not actually village. It's a group of people, like uh, um, they are from maybe the from same ancestors, so they treat each other like a family and they help each other. So when someone wants to make a katha, some other friends or family, they happily join with them. So it is a really very important thing, I think, to be a connection, uh, to make connection to each other. Can you remember? sitting around as a child and, and seeing this and doing this? Yes, I, I, when I was little, I saw making katha. That's why I can um, tell you that how they put the katha, stick them together, the saris together into the ground, because I saw that in my eyes <laughs> <laughs> uh, when I was very little. I saw them, yeah. What about you? So I actually moved to Malaysia with my parents at the age of six years old. So I have very little memories of Bangladesh, but these kathas, my mom had them as well. And my mom would tell me all her life stories and all my grandmother's stories through these kathas and through like telling telling us about how she made this katha and how they were so poor at that time and how my mom struggled and my grandma struggled to raise them all up. So yes, they're very special to me even though I myself have never personally seen them being made. What's it like to have an exhibition here at the museum and to be sharing this with the community of Wagga Wagga? Actually, the idea came to me through a children's storybook. Yeah, uh, there was there's an Australian Bangladeshi author. Her name is Radhya Chaudhary, and she wrote a book called The Katha Chest. And I was reading it to my daughter one day, and I thought, oh, this is so beautiful. This story is not just about the cloth, but about the woman who made them, about the woman behind the saris. And I thought that would be beautiful if the community would come together. And since Wagga has Wagga quilts as well, which is made from recycled material during the time when material was scarce. So I thought this would just bind the community, two communities together wonderfully. And, and it has had such a great response from the community. Everyone's saying it looks so colourful and beautiful. And that just, just makes me so happy to hear. <laughs> and what do you feel when you walk in and you see them on the wall? You know, these kathas, they are made in very rural villages in Bangladesh and the people who wear that sari, they never ever imagined that their kathas, their, which made by their saris, these kathas, it has some exhibition here. I, my mom, my grandma, my mother-in-law, they all passed away. They, they are not here. When I see this katha, I can remember my mom or 
one of them is from my mother-in-law. I can remember her. So show, seeing these kathas in the museum, so it's really, really emotional. Well, could you show me perhaps some of the, the kathas that have special meaning for you? This katha, I think my uh, mother-in-law gave it when we started ma our family, like my husband and I started the family that time, my mother-in-law gave it, and my husband always used this. I think he used it um, maybe at um, uh, 20 years. It becomes very, very old because he used a lot. So he actually this, and, and this is very comfy, very, uh, this katha is made from very, uh, you know, soft saris. So when the katha was invented, that time maybe they did not have any other option to uh, fight the cold. But now we have so many options. But still we use katha because it becomes some, some kind of uh, tradition or it gives us some comfort. This is also raising awareness of the Bangladeshi community in our community of the Riverina. Can you tell me a little bit about that? How many people from Bangladesh live in Wagga Wagga? I think 25 to 30 families, around um, 120 people here. It's kind of a representation from the Bangladeshi community to Wagga Wagga because we have a very small Bangladeshi community here. So this is an opportunity to represent Bangladeshi community to Wagga Wagga. Afsana Tanjim sharing the stories of traditional Bangladeshi quilts with reporter Emily Doak. They're being exhibited at the Museum of the Riverina at Wagga Wagga in southern New South Wales. And you can see more on that story, including photos of the colourful, intricate quilts. You'll find them on the RN homepage. Just look for A Big Country. I'm Clint Jasper with you on RN. Still to come, we'll get a history lesson in shearing with a farmer who's got an impressive collection of historic handpieces dating all the way back to the 1800s. And we'll find out why Australian growers can't keep up with demand for a tropical fruit that hails from South America. Bruce and Helen Hills, a cha-cha plantation in Guru, south of Townsville, is home to over 15,000 trees. It's one of the world's largest commercial plantations of the exotic fruit. This is the very first commercial achacha plantation in the whole world. In, in the Amazon basin, they've got um, very small. Sometimes people just grow three or four in their backyard. Other people might grow a hundred. Whilst not a mainstream fruit like the banana or the apple, there are plenty of fans with popularity for the achacha skyrocketing in recent years. When we first started, not one person knew about this fruit. So we took on some university students to do demonstrations in fruit shops to offer people a taste and probably eight out of ten people would buy a bag. And now we have more demand than supply. Grower Helen Hill says there is even an official pronunciation guide. Achacha is cha-cha, the dance, with an A in front, so achacha. It's got a fun name, it's popular, but what does it look like? I would describe it as a small orange fruit, which is smaller than an apple, but bigger than a lychee. But it's not the looks that matter. It's what's on the inside that counts. When we got our first 700 fruit, we asked a whole mass of different people to describe the flavour. 
<clears throat> and we wrote everything down and the most common was sweet tangy refreshing like a sorbet so they're the words we use to describe it if you want that sweet tangy burst in your mouth helen hill says you have to pop and pinch the fruit first what you need to do is just pierce the outside skin it's a bit like a cellophane thing and then you pop and you just pop it around like that. Take the top off and then it's ready to eat, just like that. The achacha, originally from Bolivia, is one of the most common fruits grown in the city of Santa Cruz. Everyone has uh, one of those trees in the, you know, on, their, on their yard or on the farm. So it, it, grows, it grows widely. And, uh, and yeah, some people have found a way to make it as a farm and obviously produce uh, byproducts out of that. We also, we not only consume it as a fruit, we also have it as, you know, juice, ice cream, wine. <laughs> I know that they make marmalade. And recently I have heard of shampoo and conditioner that has a potato there. That's Vivian Lardi. She's the vice president of the Australian Bolivian Society. She first found a cha-cha in Australia over a decade ago. The first time I saw it here in Sydney was in 2012. And I was extremely happy. I, the first time I saw it was in the Sydney markets, in Flemington markets. And, uh, and I was pregnant at the time, I remember. And I bought myself a box. And I thought, this is the absolute most <laughs> perfect way to spend my, my pregnancy. Uh, so I was eating a chacha all through it. And uh, yeah, ever since I haven't stopped buying it, every year I get my box of achacha. <laughs> and now I even get it delivered to my house because I buy it directly from, from the guys, from the farmers. Despite being small in size, the achacha has in fact had a profound impact on Vivian. I was so surprised and extremely happy. I am so thankful for this, for this family, for these farmers who, um, who you know, took a, a chance and, and, and have it here in Australia. I, I don't think that they know the impact that they have made to the Bolivian community. We love having that fruit available here in Australia. It, it is something that I never would have thought. So it was a, a delicious surprise. <laughs> it was beautiful to have it here. With ongoing political unrest in Bolivia, Vivian says the community in Australia can feel isolated at times but reminders of home are always helpful. It makes you feel back, you know, like you're back in your backyard with uh, like in your grandma's home and uh, your grandma's house just eating a cha-cha. It's a, it's a really bizarre feeling to feel like you're having something so, so Bolivian, so from Santa Cruz to have a heating Australia. It's, it's, it's totally mind-blowing, but um, it, it is a beautiful experience, I think. It's rare but mighty. Clearly, people can't get enough of the achacha. So does grower Helen Hill think more people will get involved with growing the exotic fruit? I'm sure there are some small people. We know of people that have it in their backyards. Once they find, once people find out it takes seven or eight years to get fruit, they lose interest. So we were stupid enough to do it. We waited the time and, and so we're the biggest, biggest grower in the world. 
Kevin Crook's day job is running a merino sheep stud at Oyen in the Mallee region of northwest Victoria. But his side hobby is collecting and preserving agricultural equipment from years gone by. I'm a passionate antique shearing collector, specialising in hand pieces. Uh, yeah, we've been lucky enough to pick up some really strange and funny hand pieces that have been built all over the world. Hello, I'm Kelly Hollingworth and Kevin is showing me through his collection that not only includes strange and funny pieces, but also some seriously old ones dating back to the 1800s. Over his years collecting, he's amassed a huge variety and number of shearing hand pieces. Uh, we've got 270 different shearing hand pieces. And what kind of effort have you gone to to collect them along the way? A lot of effort. Uh, yeah, I've been collecting for a long time. Uh, probably 20 years ago, they were quite easy to pick up. Now, uh, collecting of shearing hand pieces have become very, very popular. Some of them are making a lot of money these days. I can see that they're in Perspex boxes, so they're kept out of the dust. Tell me how you've ordered them. They're in manufacturers. Uh, we've got 16 different manufacturers here that have made hand pieces and I've got them in order from their earliest to the latest hand piece each manufacturer made. What's the oldest one you've got? Uh, there'll be some here back in the 1880s, early 1880s, experimental hand pieces. And is there a favourite amongst them all? Oh, I've got a couple of favourites. Uh, the one I've got here in my hands at the moment is a... Uh, Wilkinson sword, made in 1894. Tell me the story about this particular handpiece. They only ever made one. Uh, they had a, an agreement with another manufacturer called Bergen and Ball, and they made one experimental handpiece and were about to test it, and the partnership fell to bits, so that was the end of their manufacturing. We've got another really special one here that was made in 1906. It's a one-off as well. A shearer actually made it himself. He was a shearer and couldn't afford his own handpiece, so he actually made one. How do you think these would go today if you were to take them out and put them to good use? Uh, they'd be pretty rattly, but uh, they're all in going condition. The handpieces that are in these boxes, they're not super shiny brand new, but they're certainly not rusty and neglected. How much work's gone into making them presentable? Uh, a fair bit. Uh, I got them in various stages. Some were reasonable, some were a rusted mess out of tips. Could be from an hour, some of these hand pieces might have taken a day to get them back into um, movable condition again. We've had a bit of a walk down one side of where you've got them displayed. Some of them have got leather handles. You mentioned before there's another one with a wooden handle. They're quite diverse in how they were put together. Oh, the early ones were quite diverse. Yeah, back in the 1890s, there were quite a few ones made with wooden handles uh, before they uh, could sort of cast steel like we do now. Most of these were made in England and overseas, US big manufacturers early on, but now mostly China and not the quality of what we've got these days. There's a completely separate room beside us. There aren't shearing hand pieces in there. What treasures are in there instead? Uh, most of those are what they call portable shearing plants. Most of those are from 1915 to 19 or mid-1930s. Being a two-stand shearing plant that were towed from farm to farm with a horse team, the shearers would just ride from in areas like this where the farmer had 
maybe two to three hundred sheep, drag the shearing plant to the next door neighbour, shear them, pack up, move on to the next one. Do many people get the chance to come and have a look through here? We're still running a active farming business. We, it's not open to the public as such. But if interested people or groups want to have a look and it fits in our time frame, yeah, we don't mind opening the doors to let people have a look. What do people say to you when they hear about this collection? It's funny. Some people come in and are really keen uh, and don't even have to be involved in the shearing industry. Really, the formation of the Labor Party came out of the shearing industry. And yeah, there's so much history in the shearing industry. That's why I love it. These days, it's getting harder to find shearers. It's getting harder to shear sheep. Some of them are getting quite large. What do you think will be added to your collection if you are to keep it up for another couple of decades? I don't really know, actually. Uh, yeah, look, the shearing industry is in trouble a bit at the moment. We need a lot more younger people coming in. We need more New Zealanders and probably from other overseas countries, especially South America. It's, they just can't get visas at the moment to get into Australia. The wages here are enormous, really, for what they get paid in other countries. So if we could only get them here, it would help our industry a lot. That was Kevin Crook from Oyen in northwest Victoria. He was speaking with Kelly Hollingworth about his collection of antique shearing equipment. Before that, Lucy Cooper brought us a story about the world's first commercial plantation of the achacha fruit in northern Queensland. You can see more on that story, including a video from the plantation. It gives you a pretty good idea of what the little fruit looked like. You'll find it on the RN homepage, abc.net.au rn. Just look for A Big Country under the Programs tab. That is the show for today. I'm Clint Jasper. Thanks for listening and bye for now. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.